The French troops that we relieved here had been trying to advance their lines for some time, gaining ground one day only to lose it the next. They told us that it was no use trying to advance because it could not be done. However, we, did it. we didn't know that it could not be done, so we went ahead and did it. Captain Roy C. Hilton, United States Army, Commanding Officer, Regimental Machine Gun Company, 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment, 3rd Brigade, 2nd Division, AEF. The Battle of Blanc Mont Ridge, October 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 68, Champagne, Blanc Mont, part 2. Hope everyone is continuing to stay safe out there. We've got a whole supply train of admin notes to work through, and they're all awesome things. So let's go ahead, let's get started. So a little promo for a fellow podcaster here. If you're interested in a daily podcast that gives you a short episode on anything from the history of the U.S. penny to the Tunguska event of 1908, then you need to head over to Gary Arndt's Everything Everywhere podcast. But let me let Gary tell you more himself right here. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily, wherever you cast your pod. There you have it, folks. Everything Everywhere is available wherever podcasts are hosted. Check it out. Speaking of podcasts, I am very excited to announce that I have teamed up with Nicole Ciccarelli of The War Project on Instagram and Cullen Burke of The Cauldron Podcast, a history of the world battle by battle, to launch a new podcast project called Fix Bayonets First World War Podcasts. We will be telling the story of World War I from the beginning. Yes, the centenary is over, and there are a few other World War I narrative podcasts out there. But we're approaching this from several angles. First, Nicole will be talking strategy and giving us the bird's eye view of the events. With that, I come in and give you the tactical side of the battles and maneuvers, on the ground with the divisions, the generals, the decisions, the equipment, and the outcomes. After that, Cullen will come in with a human-level view, eyewitnesses, participants, soldiers, sailors, politicians, pilots, what have you. With every episode, we plan to give you a well-rounded retelling of the war's events. Fixed Bayonet's First World War podcast will also have short episodes called Whizbangs, where we can tackle subjects or topics of interest. The very first Whizbang is by yours truly and talks about the very name and subject, the whiz-bang artillery shell. As always, 
the BFWWP will continue on as there is so much here that we have to get to. But do please subscribe to Fix Bayonets and review it. Let us know what you think. We've been having a great time working on it. And seriously, Nicole and Cullen are, they're just the best. They're awesome. Find us on iTunes and Spotify. Fix Bayonets, First World War Podcast. Links to both Everything Everywhere and Fix Bayonets will be in the episode notes. So you can click right through and start listening. All right. Last bit of admin news here. We have a few tip of the tin hats to do for some recent gifts and new Patreon members. Big shout outs to Peter, Clark, and Rob for their recent and incredibly generous gifts to the podcast. Also, a hearty thank you to listener Steve for the donated books. Thank you so very much, gentlemen. Two big shout-outs to Kevin and Vinny, who are the BFWWP's newest supporters on Patreon. Kevin, Vinny, and other patrons on Patreon have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as not-yet-released episodes and being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show. If you are able and interested in signing up, just point your internets to patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast, and you can enlist there. You will only be charged when an episode is released, and your patronage is greatly appreciated. All of these gifts and ongoing support go towards keeping the servers running, maintaining the website firstworldwarpodcast.com, and getting the necessary research materials for these episodes. It's, it's been a real help, folks, and I really can't express enough how thankful I am for all of you out there. All right, let's get back to the lines south of Blancmont in October 1918. The morning of October 3rd came gray and misty, wrote United States Marine Corps Captain John W. Thomason Jr. in his memoir titled Fixed Bayonets. From midnight until dawn, the front had been quiet at that point, comparatively. Then all the French and American guns opened with one world-shaking crash. From the Essen Trench, the ground fell away slightly, then rose in a long slope along which could be made out the zigzags of the German trenches. The Bois de Vipere was a bluish mangled wood two kilometers north. Peering from their shelters, the battalion saw all this ground swept by a hurricane of shell fire. Red and green flames broke in orderly rows where the 75s showered down on the Bosch lines. Great black clouds leaped up where the larger shells fell roaring. The hillside and the wood were all veiled in low-hanging smoke, and the flashes came redly through the cloud. Far off, Blankmont Way, a lucky shell found and exploded a great ammunition dump. The battalion felt the long tremor from the shock of it come to them through the earth and watched, minutes after the high crimson flare of the explosion, a broad column of smoke that shot straight up from it, hundreds of feet 
and hung in air, spreading out at the top like some unearthly tree. The men crowed and chortled in the trench. Boy, ain't Heine getting it now. End quote. The Germans certainly were getting it that morning. The guns from the American 2nd Division and French 61st Division deluged the trenches ahead with a short but concentrated and intense rain of shells. The artillery bombardment began at 0545 that morning and lasted only for five minutes. At 0550, on the left of the 2nd Division's front, the Marines of the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, went up and over the top. They advanced with four companies abreast on a one-kilometer-wide front. A company of Renault FT-17 two-man tanks from the French 2nd Light Tank Battalion, assigned to support the advance, was nowhere to be found. Following two six Marines was one six, the 1st Battalion, in support, and behind them was three six Marines, the 3rd Battalion, as reserves. Further behind them were 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, then 3-5 Marines, and finally 1-5 Marines. The 5th Marines would eventually deploy slightly to the left of the 6th Marines as they advanced. To the immediate right, the Bois de Vipere would be bypassed. Manned by a battalion's worth of Germans from infantry, pioneer, and machine gun companies, it would be cleared later. This long column of battalions would send wave after wave of Marines flooding over the Champagne battlefield that morning. Some of the Marine units in the front lines had never received orders, or had received them too late. In the forward-most battalion, 2-6 Marines, the commanding major Ernest Williams received his orders at 0540, just ten minutes before it was time to strike out. Williams didn't even bother reading them. Everyone knew what had to be done. Push north and take Blancmont. Lieutenant Clifton Cates, future commandant of the Marine Corps, but at this moment, a 25-year-old junior officer commanding the 96th Company, received a handwritten note with just six words on it. Attack at once. Orders will follow. Captain Thomason and the supporting 5th Marines watched as, quote, wave after wave, the 6th went forward. For a moment, the sun shone through the murk, near the horizon, a smoldering red sun, banded like Saturn, and all of the bayonets gleamed like blood, end quote. Up ahead, Carl Brannan of the 80th Company and 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, later recalled that we moved in perfect formation. On we went. We followed our barrage as close as possible without getting into it. Once the hurricane bombardment was over, the French and American gunners had switched over to the creeping barrage. The rain of shells fell in a roaring curtain of flame, sending chunks of earth soaring and releasing thousands of pieces of shrapnel sent screaming towards German lines. Streams of bullets reached out to the Americans from ahead, whizzing past ears, tearing into the ground, and punching into bodies. Carl Brannan wrote that Marines fell like tenpins in that morning attack. The Germans would be putting up a fight for sure, and to one Marine it seemed as if every single German soldier had been issued a machine gun. The Marines came into the Germans' outpost zone, 
where Front Kempfer of the 2nd Battalion, 235th Reserve Infantry Regiment waited. Despite mounting casualties, the American troops simply cut right through them, sending surviving prisoners to the rear. A few showed fight, Lieutenant Cates said, but they were soon shot down. Some ran, and they all shared the same fate. If we failed getting them, then our barrage caught them, as they had to pass back through it. It was already a morning for extraordinary deeds, but Marine Private John J. Kelly definitely set a different standard. Kelly started it off with a boast to his friends that he would be the first to capture an enemy machine gun. A company runner, Kelly was an Irish kid from Chicago who was already known at 20 for being a barroom brawler and an otherwise loosely disciplined ball of furious energy. For you soldiers and veterans out there listening, Kelly sounds like the type of soldier or Marine who does great out in the field, but cannot do anything other than get in trouble back in garrison. You folks know the type. But Private Kelly came into his own that morning. After bragging to his friends about taking a machine gun, he set off to actually do it. His United States Army Medal of Honor citation reads as follows. Private Kelly ran through our own barrage 100 yards in advance of the front line and attacked an enemy machine gun nest, killing the gunner with a grenade, shooting another member of the crew with his pistol, and returning through the barrage with eight prisoners. Perhaps the real stamp of success to Kelly's actions was that after he returned with the captured prisoners, after having run them through his own side's creeping barrage, he apparently yelled out to his buddies, See? Told you I'd do it. Private John J. Kelly would go on to receive two Medals of Honor, actually, one from the United States Navy and one from the United States Army. He would receive the Army Medal post-war as he stood in a formation with four major generals receiving lesser awards for their own service. On the American 2nd Division's left, the French 21st Division launched its supporting attack on Helen and Hill to their front. Authors note, Helen and Hill was known as Notre-Dame-de-Champs Ridge to the French. German opposition here was such that the Poilus were unable to push forward and clear their part of the Essen trench line. This left the Marines' left flank exposed as they themselves pushed forward, and the Germans covered all of their angles. Having retaken the Essen hook position the previous afternoon, they poured enfilading machine gun fire from it right into the exposed Americans. 4th Brigade's attack was now taking fire from both the front and left flank. Casualties soared as bullets scythed through the ranks. Private Clarence Richmond, a Marine and 43rd Company of 2-5 Marines, was on the receiving end of the deadly fire. Quote, As soon as the Germans saw what we were attempting to do, they met us with heavy machine gun fire and trench mortars. I think they had every conceivable kind of trench mortar. Some of the shells sounded like they were lopsided as they hit all around us, many of them exploding in the air before hitting the ground. Machine gun fire became murderously heavy as we ascended the slope of the hill. Private Richard J. Hamilton of our platoon fell with the machine gun bullet through his chest. Hamilton carried a French automatic rifle. 
Just before coming to the front, he had been given a summary court-martial for something he had done. Getting him on a stretcher, we headed for the rear to find a first aid station. We had not gone more than a hundred yards when a trench mortar hit about twenty feet from us and wounded one of the fellows. Stopping a few minutes, I bound up his wound and we proceeded. Hamilton died before we reached the dressing station. Not wishing to leave him on the field, we buried him in a shell hole, putting up a little improvised cross and fastening one of his identification tags to the cross. End quote. The very last Marine battalion in the attack, 1st of the 5th, assigned 17th Company, led by Captain Leroy Hunt, to take out the German machine gun nests in the Essen Hook. Crossing the divisional boundary into the French sector, Captain Hunt ordered 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Wilkinson to lead his squad of 37mm Puteaux guns to destroy the enemy guns. The enemy holding the Essen Hook were men of the 2nd Company, 2nd Coal Landsturm Battalion. Lieutenant Wilkinson's Marines set up the one-pounders and began chug-chug-chugging away at four machine-gun nests until they were all silenced along with their crews. With the machine-guns destroyed, Captain Hunt led the rest of the company in an assault on the Essen Hook now. Marines with bayonets fixed swarmed the position. The surviving Germans surrendered en masse. These were Lundstrom men, older men, likely with families back home, who had no desire this late in the game to die for the fatherland. Hunt and his men secured the Essen hook and then handed it over to the French. In a counterattack later that afternoon, the Germans would wrench the Essen hook back and continue drenching the American left flank with murderous enfilade fire. On the 2nd Division's right front, the doughboys of the 3rd Brigade came into the jump-off zone under German artillery fire. The long night march in under rain and fog, French route guides who unfortunately never showed, and incoming enemy shelling created a state of near chaos for the soldiers of the 9th Infantry Regiment. 1st Battalion, in the lead, took the majority of the shelling and found its companies and platoons scattering under the fire. 2nd Battalion was called up from its supporting role to lead the assault, although this was rescinded just a while later. It got worse when it was discovered that the trenches they were to attack from had been retaken by the Germans of the 410th Infantry Regiment during the night. The assault trenches were cleared, and in the ensuing shifting, 1-9 Infantry retook the lead position of 3rd Brigade's attack. Bois de Vipère lay to the brigade's left, to be cleared later. To the right of the Doughboys were Poilus of the French 167th Division, and these men stormed Medea Farm on the eastern end of the Blancmont Massif. The Doughboys launched their attack under a storm of machine gun and shell fire. Across the rolling farmland, gently sloping upwards, was the objective ridge. In Charlie Company's sector, heavy enemy machine gun fire held up the advance, and it was here that Private Frank J. Bart went to work. From George Clark's book, The 2nd Infantry Division in World War I, we get the story. Quote, Bart, company runner and reckless like most of his breed, 
grabbed a show shot and ran out in front of the line. He silenced one machine gun nest and then regained his post by his CO. Shortly after the advance continued, it was held up once again by more machine guns. Bart took his trusty shell shot along when he went out and knocked off another machine gun nest. These actions by a brave runner earned him the only Medal of Honor awarded to the 9th Infantry during the war. The French paid him honor with a Médaille Militaire, their version of the highest of the high American awards. End quote. As the Doughboys launched their assault, the remaining Germans of the 410th Infantry threw themselves into an attack. The intention was to take back the 3rd Brigade's jump-off trenches, but the German soldiers ran straight into the oncoming Doughboys. They were slaughtered by the Americans, and by nightfall, the 410th Infantry had effectively ceased to exist as a regiment. Back in the Marine Brigade's front, the Leathernecks of 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, approached the Saddleburg Spur that jutted south from Blancmont. The spur was gently sloped like the surrounding terrain, with a patch of pines on its crest. Here, the Germans of the 2nd Battalion, 74th Reserve Infantry Regiment, unleashed a rain of machine gun fire that made an impression on the few unit survivors. The bullets of our machine guns, one said later, easily finding their mark in the dense masses of the Americans, inflicted heavy casualties. The enemy fire cut deep into the Marines' ranks, and those who were spared went to ground immediately. But the Marines were veteran fighters just like the Germans, and they wasted no time in implementing cover-and-move tactics. Hotchkiss machine gun teams laid down their own wall of lead, forcing the enemy to keep their heads down. Teams of Marines ran out through low ground to outflank the enemy positions, while others just began to walk towards the line while firing their Springfield rifles or spraying their show-shows. In the woods of the Saddleburg, two machine gun nests poured deadly fire at the oncoming Marines. Corporal John H. Pruitt of 78th Company took three volunteers and ran straight toward one of the gun positions. With his rifle, Pruitt shot and killed the gunner in that nest, then turned and killed the gunner in the other nest with another shot. Pruitt and his men then cleared out a nearby bunker packed with some 40 Germans who surrendered. For his actions that morning, Corporal Pruitt would be awarded both the Navy and the Army Medal of Honor. However, it would be a posthumous award. John Pruitt would be killed the next day the day of his 22nd birthday, by shellfire. By 0840, the 3rd Brigade reached the Blancmont Medea Farm Road. Baby tanks of the French 3rd Light Tank Battalion creaked and clanked up the slope, finally joining the Americans. To its right, the French 167th Division had taken Medea Farm itself and would shortly hand it over to the Americans. 3rd Brigade reported to Division that its flanks left and right were secure. To the 3rd Brigade's left, the Marines of 2-6 had reached the center of Blancmont Ridge after routing several companies of the German 74th Reserve Infantry Regiment. This was around 0830, as reported by 2nd Battalion Commander Major Williams. 
4th Brigade was on its objective line, although the summit of Blancmont was still being cleared out and secured. The Germans knew they were experiencing a disaster. Already at 0800, the commander of the 235th Reserve Infantry Regiment sent a report by messenger dog that read, Assistance is urgently necessary. Line Schlesier Hill Medea Ferm has been lost. Situation in regard to enemy still unclear. However, it appears that now he is already facing this line. Schlesier Hill was known as Hill 210 to the Americans and was the height between Blancmont and Medea Hill. Clearing the summit saw savage fighting as the Americans stormed the heights. The headquarters of the German 2nd Jaeger Brigade were found abandoned, but the advance command post of the 200th Infantry Division was not, and these men decided to fight it out with the Americans, at first, anyway. At 0815, a Leutnant Richet reported back by telephone, the enemy has reached the top of Blancmont. We can hear them talking above. Nine minutes later, it was only one of Richert's soldiers who called to the rear. The Americans have sent one of their men down into the dugout who is demanding our surrender. Presumably, the line after that went dead. By mid-morning, both brigades had paused on the crest of Blancmont to reorganize their lines. It was a boon to the exhausted Germans who were watching their units disintegrate before their very eyes. Battalion commander of the 74th Reserve Infantry reported later on, the Americans came forward until they were at a hand grenade throw's distance and also appeared again suddenly, this time greatly outnumbering our own men on the right and left flanks where the trenches had been completely leveled by the artillery bombardment. They appeared also even in the rear, the Americans must have designated the Medea Farm Blancmont Hill Crest as their attack objective because, had they pushed ahead regardlessly, not one man of our battalion would have been able to escape capture, not even by flight. The same commander also reported that further resistance was out of the question, most of the light machine guns having fired their last round, and the half battalion being surrounded on both flanks. Only a few men succeeded in escaping unharmed, closely pursued by airplanes that fired at random from a height of 50 meters, and their escape was made possible only by the dense shrubbery and by utilization of the changing range of the box barrage. Major General Lejeune's plan was fully at work now. Already at 9.30 that morning of the 3rd, with news that the brigades were on the first objective line or close to it, battalions from the 2nd Division's field artillery regiments began to push their guns north. The heavier guns would follow suit once these first guns were in place and firing away. Throughout the morning, heavy fighting continued around Blancmont as the Americans consolidated their positions and the Germans feverishly worked to contain the rupture and retake the lost portions of the massif. The 2nd Division had punched a deep salient into the German lines. With their left flank exposed, machine gun, trench mortar, and artillery fire was now soaking the American positions from the north, northwest, and west. 
German balloons were radioing in targets for their artillery. The 4th Brigade's Marines were getting the brunt of it, as it was their left flank that was in the air. Between the 4th and 3rd Brigades, the few hundred Germans holding out in the Bois de Viper began to melt away as best as they could. The remnants of the German 200th Infantry Division worked desperately to fulfill its mission of keeping the French off Notre-Dame-de-Champ Ridge, creating a new line running from the Essen Hook position to Blancmont and retaking the summit of Blancmont itself. To the third task, some 700 soldiers materialized near the Marine Brigade's north-northwest end of their positions, which was spotted by Lieutenant Clifton Cates. The combined firepower of four French Renault tanks, a 37-millimeter Puteau gun, Hotchkiss machine gun teams from the 81st Machine Gun Company, and Marine rifle marksmanship caused the weak counterattack to collapse. Major General Nolin of the French 21st Corps, under whom the 2nd Division served, ordered the attack to continue, while Lejeune pushed back on the order, citing that the French 21st Division on the left had completely failed to advance forward. He inevitably issued Field Order 36 early that afternoon that detailed the 5th Marine Regiment to pass through the 6th Marines and attack Saint-Étienne-Arne. To the right, the U.S. 23rd Infantry Regiment was to pass through the 9th Infantry and also attack Saint-Étienne. The objective for both brigades was the fork in the road to Say Farm, just one kilometer south of the village of Saint-Étienne. As the 5th Marines moved up in support of the attacking 6th, they echeloned left to help cover that open flank orienting west and north to face any threats from those directions. Two five Marines linked up with the 6th Marine Regiment's left flank. Three five Marines linked up with 2nd Battalion, and 1st Battalion hooked up with three five just a few hundred meters past the morning's jump-off line. 1st Battalion, 5th Marines faced west, while 3rd and 2nd Battalions faced west, northwest, and north. The three battalions were scattered from the day's combat and relentless incoming fire. And for the rest of the afternoon and well into the late hours of the night, groups of Marines were working to get back with their units. There was no way a new attack could be made. In 3rd Brigade sector to the right of the Marines, doughboys of the 23rd Infantry Regiment conducted a passage of lines moving through the dug-in men of the battered 9th Infantry to press the attack forward. Just conducting a passage of lines under heavy combat conditions shows that the 2nd Division was indeed a veteran fighting unit. The attack launched at 1,800 hours, with the 9th Infantry picking up and following as support. The situation began to develop haphazardly. As the 23rd attacked, they began to drift to the left, eventually spilling over into 4th Brigade's sector. The Germans threw their 31st Infantry Regiment at the oncoming Americans. The 31st Infantry and its parent division, the 15th Royal Bavarian, had just been relieved from the line the day prior. Major Reiss, the commander of the 31st, could only muster 200 men, 
all scraped together from three different regiments, including his own. The doughboys of the 23rd Infantry simply batted them to the side as they swarmed the open fields north of Blancmont. Behind the 23rd, the 9th Infantry followed in support, but as the 23rd veered leftward, a gap began to develop between the two regiments. The 9th pushed up to plug the hole and secured the division's right flank again by linking up with the Poilus of the 167th DI. The Doughboys punched through the Germans' shredded lines for some two kilometers until they were just a kilometer or so south of Saint-Étienne. It was only then that the Germans cobbled together a fire plan that soaked the 23rd Regiment's flanks with enfilade fire. Bloodnitz Hill, southeast of Saint-Étienne, came under American attack around 1900, and directly south of the village, on the Ludwigshocken Ridge, the Germans were screaming about Americans attacking there a half hour later. With the Americans on the northern slopes of Blancmont, those slopes covered in scrub pines but too thin to provide meaningful concealment, and on the open ground north of the Massif, the Germans had them in full view. They demonstrated it by soaking the area in continuous shell fire. As the 3rd of October came to an end, the 23rd Infantry pulled back off Bloodnitz Hill in Ludwigsrücken and settled into a deep penetration of the German front north of Blancmont, still just a half mile from Saint-Étienne. The 9th Infantry came up on the right, but couldn't push up quite as far as their sister regiment had. As a result, the doughboys of the 23rd sat in a hasty salient exposed on three sides to enemy fire. In the darkness, split by the wine and then thunderous bursts of shells, the concussions that punched men in the chest, each side desperately tried to consolidate. The battlefield was a confusion of small units working to stay connected with each other. While each side held a more or less distinctive frontline trace, head north far enough and everybody spoke German, or head south far enough and you got English or French, there were gaps in the lines. Groups of Americans and Germans were out there in the dark, unattached and under fire. The Americans dug in or hunkered down and captured German trenches and dugouts, or they searched in the screaming darkness for their units. 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines got itself into position among the 6th Marines, readying for an attack that was to launch at 0600 the next morning. The Germans worked with every ounce of energy left to them to plug the holes and stem this catastrophe. The area south of Saint-Étienne needed to have the pressure taken off of it, and above all, Blancmont must be retaken. Even if they couldn't hold it, they had to drag out this fight for as long as it took to make the Americans and French realize they would pay a terrible price for every inch gained. General von Nieder scraped together elements of three divisions, the emaciated remains of once proud battalions of coal scuttle front pig fighters. Peace would have to be secured through blood. During the evening of the 3rd to the 4th, the Marines of the 5th Regiment displaced towards the Somme-Pie-Saint-Étienne Road, while the 6th Regiment covered the open left flank. 
While no attack could be made that night, the 5th Regiment was pushing to attack early the next morning. The momentum had to be maintained. The pressure kept on the Germans. They were definitely cracking. And so, in the early hours of the morning of October 4th, as the Marines of the 3rd Battalion prepared themselves to continue the assault, a firestorm erupted in the dark. German soldiers exploded out of the darkness toward American positions north of Blancmont. The Germans had no time to lose. They were counterattacking, and they planned to take back Blancmont. Now. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at redonepodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.